Welcome to the Jung Anthology podcast from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The Warrior Within, a study in masculine psychology with Robert Moore, PhD. This episode is the first session of the series, The Warrior Within, a classic seminar in his series on the four major archetypes of masculine psychology as he understood them, king, warrior, magician, lover. From the seminar description, the warrior is the archetype of self-disciplined aggressive action. If warrior energy is not accessed properly, a man may find himself caught up in cruel or self-destructive behavior. The mature warrior, however, will be energetic, decisive, and persevering in reaching his goals. The course is divided into the following topics. The warrior in myth, folklore, and religion. The warrior's role in masculine creativity and leadership psychopathology of the warrior, and creating the rainbow warrior, resources for healing the warrior. It was recorded in 1989. Robert Moore has been on this podcast a bunch of times, so I'm not going to read his whole bio, uh, but he was Distinguished Service Professor of Psychology, Psychoanalysis, and Spirituality at the Graduate Center of the Chicago Theological Seminary, where he was the founding director of the New Institute advanced studies in spirituality and wellness and he has tons of books and lots of stuff in our online store Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about uh, his work um, a link to the full series the warrior within and uh, his other recordings on our website just click the links in the show notes okay now let's jump right in Oh, I also want to say, before we get to it, that uh, the recording quality for this first session is not great. The second session recording quality is much better for whatever reason, um, but it doesn't make sense to jump around and share the second part before the first. So what we're sharing is the first part. If, if you're just not interested because it's too difficult to understand you know what people are saying totally fine you can just skip this episode of course um if you do think well maybe it's worth persevering maybe i'm going to try and buy the rest of it because i want to find out what else he says but you're dissatisfied with the audio because of the recording quality you know at the time which is impossible to control now um you know we offer refunds for anyone who's dissatisfied with the purchase or anything like that so we're working with what we're working with and i hope you enjoy it anyway just want to make sure i say that before we get into it okay thanks well i'd like to welcome you to this uh, beginning of your sessions on behalf of the uh, institute and the uh, chicago metropolitan area union community which is a growing People dedicated to the study of young psychology in relationship to contemporary life. I know many of you from past uh, exposure at the Institute, but I'll get a chance to meet 
discussion here in this four sessions. Um, let me say just a little bit more about myself and what brings me here for this. Um, I am an analyst in private practice in Evanston and Chicago and work a lot with men women who are trying to figure them out <laughs> and uh, and I go around lecturing on masculine psychology around the country and working on doing a lot of work on masculine psychology today uh, and feel that there are very few things that are more important than studying masculine psychology uh, given the situation in our world today and, uh, and these four sessions are an elaboration of uh, uh, some introductory work that uh, I've been doing on uh, the four major archetypes of the masculine, which I'll just do a quick overview tonight for those of you that have not been working with that. I'll also try to say a little bit about how they relate to female psychology. Uh, but tonight, first half at least, I want to spend get, getting us an orientation to thinking about archetypal psychology, why I think about it at all. And the uniqueness of Jung's work in this area. And uh, the sessions, as I've you've seen the program, as I've envisioned them, tonight we'll look at the archetype itself as it's manifest in cultural materials. And uh, next week we'll talk about, we'll emphasize the potential of that archetype uh, for uh, national psychology today. What it is, we'll emphasize more what it is for in terms of actualizing some sense of, uh, of the warrior in appropriate way. I want to do that first before emphasizing the pathology because I'm really tired of, uh, of people not understanding that uh, the warrior is an important aspect of the human psyche. I'm not one of those that thinks it can ever be expunged. It will never be expunged from the human psyche. The only thing that can be done is to deal with it realistically. Uh, it's like all the other archetypes which you'll see in a minute. You get a fantasy of vanishing it only to your peril and the peril of the people around you. So, uh, so I want to emphasize the potentials next week uh, and talk about how it operates optimally uh, week. Uh, and talk about how it operates optimally. And then I want to spend a good deal of time uh, about the way in which this, the, the, uh, this archetype operates in psychopathology. And I will try to present a number of different forms in which this operates, when it, when it does not operate correctly. When it's not balanced in the psyche of a person, how it manifests itself. And in the fourth session, I want to talk about concrete ways that you can heal the warrior and yourself and other people who are working with men. Uh, some of you may involve, be involved in management, some of you may be therapists in a 
you're concerned about healing the warrior within yourself, you would focus a lot on the therapy, on therapy, therapy, therapy techniques as you would follow. I might have started today of all days. Uh, I might have appropriately started with <coughs> psychopathology, uh, given the fact that in Stockton, California yesterday, the warrior archetype possessed a fellow, and he became a mighty boy warrior. And he got his AK-47, and he went into a schoolyard, and he proceeded bravely and mightily as a mighty warrior, my mighty boy warrior, to kill a lot of helpless children and wound a lot more. Um, the history of the human race with regard to this archetype has been largely a history of boy warriors. Uh, and uh, as we will see, uh, so often the 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 masculine archetypal potentials that are related here are, are, are honored in their act, accessing, being accessed as shadow aspects of the psyche. It's very difficult to be a man, much more difficult than uh, most uh, people realize. And, uh, Certainly, in our particular time, it is not, uh, it, it's not receiving very much thought. The whole idea of manhood or becoming a man or becoming a mature man, what that's about, does not receive a great deal of thought. Uh, certainly, when you compare reflection on what it takes to become a man as compared with what it takes to become a woman today, uh, the, the female of our species has done a lot better job of late doing some homework with regard to uh, feminine potentials. Uh, and while there's a lot of work to be done still yet on the archetypal feminine and ways of balancing that in a mature woman's life, uh, while there's a lot to be done, uh, they're so far ahead of us uh, in terms of work on the masculine that uh, that it's a pretty uh, rough situation. Uh, it's particularly difficult, I think, today for women because uh, increasingly women are, are intuiting that there's not a lot they can do for their men to help them do this. And yet they want to be helpful. Uh, and uh, it's very frustrating uh, to be trying to help a man when you don't what to do to help him. So this is why a lot of people are, are trying to let me let me get into the the basics of archetypal psychology as I'm using it here uh, briefly uh, to to give you a sense of the way that I'm doing this. I want to differentiate myself from the school represented by James Hillman, so-called archetypal psychology. Uh, Hillman, I don't know how many of you have studied much of that. Hillman, uh, in many ways, uh, does not 
stay with Jung's original understanding of the role of the archetype, the, the archetype and the role of the archetype in the psyche. I consider myself a much more orthodox union in terms of my understanding of the archetype and the way it functions. Uh, I really believe there are archetypes. I don't think they're merely uh, fantasy products of the imagination. And uh, I really believe that to go the route that James Hillman and some of the other people in so-called archetypal psychology have gone is to do away with Jung's major contribution to human psychology. Because it really matters whether or not you believe that the human psyche has a deeply structured form in the unconscious. Uh, the, the thing that differentiates uh, Jungian from a Freudian today. Interestingly, it didn't differentiate Jung and Freud in the same way, but contemporary Jungians and contemporary Freudians differ on this. The, the Freudians don't really believe that the unconscious is really that structure. They see it as sort of a soup. Uh, loaded with energy, full of primitive, infantile affects, feelings, emotions, and so forth, but not really that structure. Uh, Jungians, uh, who really adhere more essentially to Jungian, Jung's metapsychology, Jung's teaching on psych, really believe that they're, it's more like a student. <laughs> a lot of things down in that pot. <clears throat> and they are shaped in certain ways. They're not all shaped the same way. And these objects down in the unconscious have an effect on the ego when they come in proximity to the ego or the conscious mind. And they don't all have the same effect. If you study contemporary Freudian psychoanalysis and some of its derivatives, you would have the idea, for example, that infantile pathological grandiosity, wherever it manifests, is always the same. If you follow Jung, you know that that's wrong. Infantile pathological grandiosity manifests itself in radically different ways. It's all grandiosity. But to put it this way, if you are possessed by the archetype of the king, you will be infantilely grandiose in a certain way. And the people around you will be affected in a certain way. There will be certain <coughs> behaviors you will engage in and certain behaviors you will avoid. <coughs> but if you're possessed by the archetypal lover, you will still be pathologically infantile grandiose. But you won't act in the same way that the man who is possessed by the king will act. And the same thing is true about the other forms. And that is to say, uh, while we appreciate a person like Heinz Koba and other uh, contemporary Freudian psychoanalytic uh, representatives of that tradition, uh, those of us who consider, our, consider ourselves Jungian believe that Jung's psychology of uh, grandiosity 
is in many ways far superior to that of Freud. And uh, uh, I think that is one of the, that is the, the most unique thing I think about Jungian psychology, and it's what makes it radically superior to other forms of depth psychology. Because it gives you much more of a geography of the unconscious, much more of a sense of the shaping of those deep structures in the unconscious that influence your behavior. Gives you much more of a sense of the grammar and the recognizability of these structures so that you can figure out what is happening with yourself or with someone else when they are being possessed by a certain form or whether they are projecting it on someone else around them. So uh, rather than just seeing the archetypes uh, as interesting interesting things about uh, that you can study. Uh, they have enormous significant for, significance for human behavior and, uh, and personality, and not to know about them, and not to know the way they influence society is, uh, is really uh, a dangerous thing, because you're meeting these things all the time. So let me just start off by saying that the Jung talked about the objective psyche, the objective psyche, and by that he meant a, a structured aspect of the collective unconscious of the human race that is not in the ego, that influences the ego, and which can be studied by studying uh, human culture, religion, folklore, mythology, and so forth. Uh, and you can get a sense of the uh, phenomenology of these structures in society, the way that they appear in human experience. But knowing the archetypes is just one, uh, one task. What you have to have a sense for is the way in which they function. How do they function? They function as energy sources in the psyche. They function as shapers of behavior, feeling, thinking. They shape the image one has of the future, of the past. They shape, one, they shape one's love or one's inability to love. Uh, they have an interesting quality that you need to get very clear about, and that is they tend to be very imperialistic. <laughs> each time, each one wants all of you, you know. It's all of you, I want all of you. <laughs> so one of the things that you do when you're looking at yourself in this kind of point of view is you ask yourself which which archetypal forms are dominating you, which ones tend to be dominant in your personality. You will notice if you look closely at any person, uh, unless you're of course one of these individuals. <laughs> 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 tend to be dominated by one or two 
archetypes. And they tend to be very out of touch with the others. Yeah. If you see it in, in your analyses, uh, sometimes a real struggle between one, you know, two, two competing archetypes. All the time. All the time. Jean Bonin, in the book that you all ought to read in order to kind of practice your thinking this way, that Goddesses in Every Woman book, has, has analyzed the feminine psyche uh, using various goddesses as ways to think about these structures. She's coming out in the spring with a book, uh, Gods in Every Man, which uh, will be, I think, useful, and she's going to be here Friday night speaking on Dionysus. While I personally don't think that looking at gods and goddesses is the best way to get at this, it's certainly useful. And I recommend her work strongly on this. But one of the things she emphasizes quite rightly is that these, these goddesses uh, all want to talk at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, for example, if you look at the contemporary career woman, the Athena, personality uh, is very assertive. It certainly is assertive if she's going to be successful. Because if uh, Athena is the female warrior uh, image, and if a woman does not have a lot of Athena, she will be at a great disadvantage in the world career. But if Athena has too much power over her, she will not be able to sustain an intimate relationship with a man very long. It will be uh, it will be very limiting in the kind of relationship she can have with a man. One of the things that I would want us to get clear about is what this archetype of warrior does to intimate relationships. What it excludes, what it can include, uh, what what potentials it has for for forming relationship, avoiding relationship, and also what 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 it does to help you stay in a relationship once you've got one. It's an interesting paradox that if you don't have a lot of the qualities of the warrior, see if you do have a lot of the warrior, it's going to be hard to form a lasting intimate relationship. But if you don't have a good bit of the warrior and the qualities of the warrior, you won't be able to keep one. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that if you have a whole lot of the archetypal lover, you'll form lots of relationships. But keeping them will be a different thing. Because the qualities, the good points of the lover are not are not those of fidelity. The archetypal lover is promiscuous as hell. So in any case, let me just say a few more things about the way the archetype is and the way it operates. It, it the Jungians say it's numinous, N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S, numinous. Comes from the term used by the great phenomenologist Rudolf Otto. And it means sort of magical. 
sparkling with magic or energy and power and attractiveness and seductiveness. All archetypal patterns have a certain magical quality to them. They tend in their, in their own power to organize things around them like a magnetic field. And to the extent that your ego is not very strong, or as a self-psychologist would say, to the extent that you don't have a consolidated little s self-structure, you will be pushed and pulled willy-nilly by archetypal patterns. And you, won't, you, you, will, you will be very much at their mercy. If you have a developed ego, as ego psychologists would say, you will be able to be a little bit less vulnerable to uh, the bullying of archetypal patterns. In other words, you will be able to choose and relate to them much more consciously and with much more freedom. The Jungian word individuation, what's that got to do with archetypes? Well, you have to individuate against the pull of archetypes. In other words, when you're a real infantile, you're a real archetypal. See, this is what a lot of people don't understand. Being archetypal doesn't make something good. In fact, with human beings, the more archetypal they are, the crazier they are. <laughs> you understand that? There's nobody more archetypal than a psychotic. <laughs> Paranoid schizophrenics are walking archetypes. Borderline personalities are in touch with the archetypes a lot more than you. That's your borderline. And if you are a borderline, one of the neat things about you is precisely that. <laughs> Seriously. Borderlines are a lot more in touch with this stuff than the rights. That's why it's a lot that's exciting to be a borderline. <laughs> <laughs> Never a dull moment to be a borderline. Sometimes you wish it was more dull, but, uh, but that's not the problem with the borderline excitement. And it's precisely because the borderline doesn't have much in the way of ego structures, and therefore there's not much of a repression barrier between them and the archetypal world. So they're kind of magical people. And uh, the thing they have to do is learn how to appreciate that. And that the borderline has to realize that if they get a little stronger in terms of their ego and self-structure, it doesn't mean they have to be ordinary. Uh, the problem about psychotherapy, if you go to a psychotherapist at another school, is that the goal of most therapists is to make you ordinary. And most therapists think that if you don't think you're ordinary, then you're crazy. Uh, fact is that from a Jungian point of view, it's absolutely unnecessary to make somebody ordinary in order to cure them. In fact, from a Jungian point of view, if you think you're ordinary, you simply haven't finished working on your ego self-access. <laughs> because it is your connection to the archetypal self within you that lets you flow with this magic. 
But the crazier you are, the more you'll think you're the archetypal self. And you won't be aware of the dangers relating to this thing. So your circuits will always be overheated. Or your circuit breakers will be gone. One of the two. They'll either be hot or gone. So the Jungian uh, point of view is a very good news for anybody with an artistic bent. Because if you're an artistic type, uh, you're, the last thing you're going to want, you'd much rather be crazy than uncreative. <laughs> <laughs> Any day. And, uh, well, well, they're different. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, each one of them has, has some piece in it. And don't let me forget to go into that a little bit because, because each each one of these, a successful artist, somebody that's really that's really centered as an artist, will, will participate each of these in some uh, uh, useful way. But the important thing to realize is that this is that this when you say archetypal energy, you're talking about something that is like 220,000 volts. You're talking about something that you're not meant to mainline. You're not supposed to have your finger in the socket. And it's very important when you're understanding this uh, archetype, the Jungian psychology of archetypes, to understand that an archetype is not something you want to be. It's not something you want to be real close to. Because it is a very, very magical, powerful pattern and energy source in the psyche. It's there for a particular purpose. If you utilize it in a mature way, it will really fuel you and inspire you, and you will not be bored, but it won't make you psychotic. If, you're, if, you, if you get into it inadvertently, it will make you crazy. If you have had enough development of your ego defenses in your family, so that you're almost neurotic, you know, if you're up to the level of almost being neurotic. What will happen when you get really close to the archetype energy is all your circuits will go. Your defenses will operate to shut it down. It's like an automatic fail-safe system on a nuclear reactor. Get that? Think about it a minute. If you are, if you are not really borderline, if you're a little more organized in your personality than a borderline, when you get close to this stuff, when you get too close to it, you'll shut down and get depressed. So if you have a chronic depression, think about it. If you have a chronic depression, it means that your defenses are helping you stay away from the archetypal inputs. That's good or bad. Excuse me? Is that good or bad? Well, it depends. It's good if you don't want to be psychotic. I always treat somebody's depression as friendly because I see it as compensating grandiosity. If you're a, clinic, if you're a clinical psychologist <coughs> trained in the everybody else school of thought, they will teach you that manic states compensate the depression that a person is getting near to being depressed and so they're having to be in a manic state 
to defend against the depression. That's exactly the opposite to what's true. In other words, the person that's depressed is an individual whose defenses are working well enough that when they are too close to this archetypal energy, the defenses operate like a fail-safe system and shut the systems down, just like in a, just like in a power plant. And that would be repression. That's repression. To the extent that your defenses are fairly matured, not great, but good enough, you will get depressed and not crazy. You get it? If you are not as well organized, you will start getting crazy. And how will that look? You will get compulsive in some form, or you will get manic, and you'll start not being able to sleep. And you'll be super creative. And then you'll have to go see your dealer <laughs> and get some more cocaine. And, uh, you know, cocaine is just uh, a ritual form of staying in touch with this stuff after you're so fatigued that you would be out. But uh, uh, if your defenses are good enough, you would just get depressed. And so whenever you're really depressed, the question to ask yourself is simple. Well, how have I been getting too close to some archetype? Which one is it? <laughs> how do I need to come down a little bit? Because you have to, in other words, the paradoxical thing is you have to come down in order to get the energy back. You have to get off the high chair in order to access the energy. Now this again remember this isn't true if you're borderline or psychotic. Yeah. What is that how does that put for Mormons? You know, like if you're having a depression and you're in mourning. Well in mourning it's kind of a different thing. That is you're sort of a normal neurotic person that's had a major loss. Mm -hmm. And that you've had your you've had a, a world ectomy or a world otomy. You know, your world is just gone. And you've had a major loss. Your cosmos has been destroyed. And so uh, so you're having a major, major loss. And it has put you into a transition state. And in a transition state, you are particularly vulnerable to archetypal invasions. Here's a rule, folks. When you've had a major loss, you're just like a landing pad for archetypes. <laughs> Major loss. It's like you. It's like in close encounter for the third time. Lift, 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 lift. Land here. <laughs> land here. And so you can you can see this that the depression is a way of really limiting the uh, the the infusion of these energies that would come in your whole world. See, when your ordinary world is going, the extraordinary world here. This is why when you are in major losses, you tend to get all these religious experiences. Uh, crisis in your life, religious experience. Translate archetypal encounters. And so, uh, 
So the whole, in other words, if you think about what the individuation process is, what is it that you want to develop as a mature person from this point of view? Well, you want to develop the capacity to, to relate to these energy sources and these patterns and potentials in a way that really fuels you and inspires you and fills you out and fills you up so that your cup runs over a little bit, not too much. <laughs> and in other words, so that you feel the fullness, what Jung called the pleroma, you feel the fullness of life. In other words, if you're accessing this stuff, you will not, if you're accessing it right, you will not be depressed. If you're accessing it much too little, you will probably be depressed. And if you jack it up too fast and overload the circuits, it'll pop you down into depression. So what you want to do is like in-flight in refueling. You want to learn how to come up behind the mothership just right, and you don't want the nozzle coming through the windshield. <laughs> <laughs> you want to come up behind it, and you want to fuel, and then you want to go off and do your work. And then you want to come back to it and refuel, and then you want to go off and do your work. But you don't want to fly up into the belly of the plane. Uh, and this, this is the kind of uh, metaphor that helps you understand what Jung meant and what Somebody like, like, if you want to get a real good treatment of this, read Edward Edinger's little book called Ego and Archetype. It's laid out there. Ego and Archetype. And he talks about the ego-self axis. Remember, that's the ego-capital-S-self, archetypal-self axis. It means a relationship. Yes, dear. Um, <clears throat> when you go out to the mothership, you want more of, a, of an IV drip than a mainline connection. Right. Well, you, you want the amount that your tanks can take without bursting. And you want you want the uh, you want the flow to be at the at some kind of a regulated rate. And then you want to be able to detach. Uh, for example, see optimally if you have a therapeutic experience that works, you shouldn't be finally uh, addicted to the therapist. Uh, for those of you in Freudian therapy, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, get into that. Why, why Freudian therapy has to have people in therapy so much, so long? Because it's built into their metapsychology. There's no way out of analysis if you're a Freudian. Really. Because you have, since they don't believe in archetypes, the Freudian analyst doesn't know they're an archetype. They don't know that they receive an archetype of transference. And they don't know of any way in which the person could receive <coughs> that without them. And so they maintain an archetypal transference forever. When the task of the Jungian analyst is to return you to your archetypal self. 
Right? A lot of Jungian analysts don't do that. But that's not because of the theory. That's because of uh, whatever. That's confusing from what you said before that you, uh, I mean, you can't just literally compare your archetype to you with the crazy person. So you're talking about returning you to your archetype self in mastery or something like that. With an axis. The task of, 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 of analysis is not to make you an addict for analysis. The task of analysis is to help you form an axis with your archetypal self that you can manage in your own ritual way. See, one of the things I talked about in the fourth session is, is sort of ritual means of, of monitoring your relationship with these The point is, is that if I don't understand that I have an inner magician, I will have to project it on you and relate to you as my magician. Uh, that's probably necessary early on, but then soon you should have your own relationship with your inner magician. If you're in analysis with me, you should be able to take that back, and I should become more ordinary. And your own luminosity would be something you relate to inside. And you should be free of me. I hope you can be like me, but you would be free of me. See, I wouldn't be on retainer forever. That's the key difference. Uh, so, in other words, the, uh, the ego self-axis is the goal. And this is true for every one of these major archetypes. And, uh, and you want to be able to develop your ego, your own conscious, mature self, to the extent that you can make decisions about when you need to be in touch with the king, say, more or when you need to be in touch with the lover more, or when you need to be in touch with the warrior more. Because if you don't have that kind of consciousness and that kind of self-mastery, then the, the system has not done its job for you. And we also want access to our ego. Exactly. In a very similar way. All these things interact with each other in a mutually regulating way, and if you're not if you're not in touch with each of these on some fairly regular basis and some conscious basis, then you're condemned to acting out. Yeah. You you can't make it though by the right balance of these four meals. I think that's accurate. But I, I don't think well, he's saying that you can't simply make it in terms of as a man, for example, by simply relating to the four male archetypes. I would say that's right because that totally avoids the anima dynamics, the inner feminine, the contrasexual. But in many ways, we've got a lot more men that are on better terms with their feminine than they are on terms with their masculine. Maybe you should tell us a little about these archetypes before we... All right, sure. Let me just go over them briefly. So the goal is accessing not being possessed by it, if you're possessed by it, it's sort of, you just incarnated it. It's used you to incarnate. Uh, that guy out in Stockton wasn't himself anymore. The human self disappeared. And this 
killing machine took its place. The warrior archetype, when it is possessing you, turns you into a killing machine just as deadly as Jaws. And no more human than Jaws. So in any case, uh, these four operate in the male psyche. And let me just tell you briefly what they do. And then we'll get more into the warrior. We'll discuss this before we take a, take a break. The king is the archetype of order. Without this, you will be extremely anxious. To the extent that you're a male and you're nervous, you're out of touch with this. Yeah. Even if you're like kind of overly organized, Oh, yes. If you're an obsessive-compulsive type, you're very much out of touch with this. Obsessive-compulsive have a lot of warrior Not much king. The king is also an archetype, the archetype of blessing in a man. Without the king, he will not be a good father or a good mentor. Say so that without that, related to it in a conscious way. If the king possesses him, he will be a narcissistic personality disorder. A little Lord Fauntleroy on his high chair throne what we call the shadow king. A lot of executive shadow kings. But the purpose of it is it's associated with the axis mundi, the center of the world in mythology. The king is the center of the world in mythology. I recommend that you look at John Perry's book The Lord of the Four Quarters. It is the means by which fertility enters the world. In ancient cultures, the king was one with the source of fertility. If the king, you've heard the rainmaker story, if the rainmaker goes into the hut and puts himself in the dial, everything works. That's a derivation of the story about the sacred king. Not a rainmaker, it's a king, it's the emperor. Chinese emperor. To be a warrior in the truest sense, you have to have a king. You don't have a sacred king, you're not a warrior. You may be a killer, you're not a warrior in, in the archetypal sense. We'll see more about why that is in a minute. Or you'd be a soldier. Hmm? You'd be a soldier. <clears throat> see, soldier is not, I mean, soldier is sort of a, uh, a human expression of this thing. Uh, the, the true, the archetypal reality is much more what we would mean in our culture by knight. 
the night. Uh, uh, the soldier, as we know it, has to have a general in order to have any chance of being a warrior in, in the sense in which this, this set up archetypal. Right, but that's usually profane instead of... Oh, yes, that's true. That's true. In, in human history, in fact, you take the Vietnam War, there were very few warriors in the Vietnam War. There were a lot of boy warriors. But a lot of the atrocities that were committed, when you get atrocities committed, like, like we see in so much of the literature on the Vietnam War, you see that because of the extent to which Pu'er psychology ran the entire war. General from the generals down, from the president down to the generals. And uh, that's one of the things we want to get into a lot more. You see, there are a lot of people, for example, even William Manchester, the, 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 the biographer of, of MacArthur, I mean, he's written a biography about one of the greatest generals of all time, and he doesn't understand this stuff at all. He has no understanding of this at all. Because he thinks, when he talks about MacArthur and MacArthur's values and everything, he, 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 talk, he accuses him of being a 19th century militarist. That's all he can think of to say about this. He has no understanding whatsoever about the archetypal ground of being a general or any of that stuff. And so he ends up a Manchester. I don't know if you've seen this book. It's entitled American Caesar. Uh, and it's out in a film version. You can get it. It's a film biography of MacArthur. They don't understand MacArthur at all. Uh, but in any case, uh, you've got to have a warrior. You have to have the king or equivalent. Because you have to have someone to be loyal to. You have to have someone to be faithful to. It has to be semper fi. You have to be always faithful. And see, today, people think that's a joke. People think, some, think the marine motto is a joke. Well, it's not a joke. If you understand this stuff, it's not a joke at its archetypal core. And to the extent that this, that this reality that we're discussing in these four, sets, four sessions, to the extent that it is a human reality, the only person who knows anything about faithfulness, including marital faithfulness, is the archetypal warrior. Faithfulness is a warrior virtue. If you don't have this thing, you don't know the slightest idea about devotion or faithfulness to anybody, to anything. Sir? Faithfulness is not a virtue of the king. Do you get it? Or the lover. Or the magician. Okay. Now. What are the qualities about the king that evoke this faithfulness? You well, mentioned he, that he brings the archetype, he speaks order, and he speaks blessing. Can you see, you got to get a sense for what the king... See, we don't know anything about kingship today because the only definition of a king... See, the word sacred king is... is is, is an alliteration almost. It's a, it's a repetition, an unnecessary tautology. Because a king is sacred in human culture. To the extent that you get anything like a secular king, it's not a king anymore. You know, it's just a sort of a figurehead thing. 
But but in human culture, the king, to the extent that he was a sacral king, you've got to read Golden Bough, Fraser's Golden Bough, and get a sense about what it was like to be king uh, in a primitive world. They were God, or they were the vicar of God, the deputy of God. The closest thing is the pope. If you're a devout Catholic and you're feeling about the pope, the pope is in that archetype of the king. The papacy is the, clear, the closest thing, really, to uh, the archetype of the king that you get to that, except here I hate that. It's an interesting thing to think about what's going to happen in Japanese culture and life now. Because now, for the first time in history, they're without a king, in the sense of the sacred king. But uh, the fact is, he's magic. He is the source of all order and life. This is the father archetype in all of its potency. And this is the thing that's behind the reason we're all dissatisfied with our fathers. Because no real father could ever possibly be good enough. See, that's why all these Freudian fantasies of good enough mother and the good enough father, there never was one. <laughs> Did you ever meet anybody that had one? A good enough mother or a good enough father? No, not really. That's because they're archetypes. And they're magic. And, and any real person will not adequately embody it. They will fail in embodying it. You mean there's not enough quality time today? It wouldn't matter how much quality time there is. There's a new archetype out now called what you say about your unsatisfactory uh, mother and father. Everybody's raving about it. It's not to say that it's not important when you say good enough, you mean to mediate this structure in a way that's good enough for a person to be able to build some internalization of it. So it's not that it's it's unimportant, it's just that it, it, it's... <clears throat> the Freudians, because they don't have any kind of uh, this kind of metapsychology, they have to blame the mother sort of major in blaming the mother. Well, uh, right. You blame the mother, only you blame the father. But the point of it is, is that they have this priestly task. They have to mediate this divine reality in such a way that, in, in a way that's good enough for the person to be able to kind of embody it slowly in themselves. And it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. Magus. Magician. It's the archetype of awareness. Knowledge, knowing. It's the archetype of introversion. It's having an inner life. When, when you get Robert Johnson's book, Inner Work, that's the, the book about being becoming a magus, becoming your own magician. Uh, and uh, to the extent that you're in analysis or working on your own awareness of your dynamics, you are developing your inner magician. The magician is there to know and to interpret. The magician is not there to order. The magician is not there to love. The magician is not there to fight. The magician is there to know. What is the shadow side of the magician? Well, the shadow side of the magician is that's all they do, is know. <laughs> you know? Everybody's criticism of academics 
They're criticizing the shadow magician. Because you know what uh, what a shadow magician will do is that you'll, you'll be, have to be working on some problem and the shadow magician will say, <clears throat> you're working on a practical problem. <laughs> this is like the University of Chicago. You know, the University of Chicago, they try very hard not to ever work on anything practical. Because <laughs> it's not as prestigious as working on things meta-theoretical. Or meta-theoretical. <laughs> <laughs> At the University of Chicago School of Social Work, we just study theories. At the Jane Addams School of Social Work, they study practice. You've heard of deconstructionism, the new hermeneutics of deconstructionism, you know, that's when you you interpret things until you can't find any meaning anywhere. <laughs> that's the shadow magician. Because the, the shadow magician can't find any meaning anywhere. And he's most impressed though with his capacity to interpret. With that, let's take a short break. The uh, function of the lover, before we go on, the uh, whereas the king centers, orders, and blesses, and the warrior uh, enables one to focus and fight, and uh, a number of other things that we're talking about. The magus enables you to know, be aware, develop inwardness, and capacity to reflect. The lover is the archetype of appreciation, delight, joy, valuing, um, and of course, in, in this schema, all of these things are stereotypes and, and very inhuman if they're not informing each other. One of the things we'll talk about is uh, what the warriors like when there's not enough king, what the warriors like when there's not enough magus, what the warriors like when there's not enough lover, and that sort of thing. But uh, you get a my lie, for example, when there's not enough, uh, there's not enough lover. Yeah, you get what? You get a my lie. You get atrocities. Oh, okay. When uh, when there's no uh, capacity to value the human, uh, when human life becomes just uh, cannon fodder, this thing is way out of whack. So <clears throat> let me talk a little bit now about uh, about the. Uh, this this B here, King Cosmos Chaos. That is what you've got to get clear about is in this archetypal realm, uh, chaos is always encroaching. Uh, king's throne is at the center of the world. You notice these these uh, primitive cosmogonies. The throne is always here. For Christians, that's the cross. cross is at the same time the throne, the, 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 the place where the king is, the king of the world is on the cross. Ultimate order comes through the cross for the Christian. And the blood of Christ, as in the transformation symbolism of the mass, is the food of immortality. 
That is blessings, all blessings come through the cross. But uh, there are always the forces of disorder. And what else? If it's order and life, then it must be disorder and what? Death. death. The forces of death are always encroaching. And so, in terms of the primitive world, say, let's take King David, for example. And we'll get to the God as the, the God as warrior in a minute. As long as things are fine, the king can sit on the throne and enjoy holding court. But whenever the forces of the Philistines or the Gideonites or whatever you may call it, the, 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 those that would encroach on your world start coming in, then the archetypal king gets off the throne and becomes a general. There you get the king in his role as commander-in-chief. There's the president, and then there's the president as commander-in-chief. And when the president becomes the commander-in-chief, he has become the archetypal general. And this is Caesar. And the war is against those who would disorder the world. See? It's against those that would cause the world to become a barren place. This is King Arthur and the round table. See? You see the round table here. The round table is nothing but a, a mandala image of an ordered, creative, fertile world. And what happens to destroy this Camelot? So think about the myth. What happens? You know something about that particular story? The Queen seduces Lancelot. Yeah. Now see, Lancelot is an interesting study here. See, you look at the way these archetypal images work in that story. Because uh, because you get it all there. You've got the lover part, you've got, you've got Merlin the magician, Magus. You've got Lancelot in his various aspects. And you've got problems. And we'll get, in a minute, we'll get into Lancelot's problem. Uh, and, and, and in that story, you get the initiatory motif of the knight. And you get the movement from white knight to red knight to black knight. And that's what we'll go through in a minute. That is, a, that is an archetypal progression we'll get into in a minute. But you've got to understand that the knight does not exist without this. The knight of the round table functions on behalf of this. He's not freelance. <clears throat> No such thing as a freelance warrior in the archetypal sense. There's no such thing as a freelance mercenary. A mercenary is not a warrior in the sense that this is talking about. 
because if your gun is for hire to the highest bidder, you're a killer, not a warrior. So, in other words, the king and the world, the cosmos, you've got to understand the tension in the mythical world between cosmos and chaos. And you've got that polarity in all of these mythic structures. King, cosmos, chaos. And the night exist in service to the king on behalf of the right order. See? In other words, the knight functions not on his own behalf and and does not uh, act out of some personal schema. The, the knight operates on behalf of the Tao, and so to speak. The right order. In different mythologies, and again, let me refer you to John Perry's book, Lord of the Four Quarters, and also his uh, Roots of Renewal and Myth and Madness, where he talks about the, uh, the way in which the, um, the uh, uh, king is associated directly with right order. In other words, the king's legitimacy is one with <clears throat> just social organization. Yes. Well, is the commitment more to right order than the king? For instance, if the king uh, becomes out of the right order, then... He's not the king, then. Right, and it's the duty of the Archetypally speaking, see, now you're talking about humans. But archetypally speaking, the, the, the true king. See, this is really what you would, you and I would say is this is talking about God. I mean, when you're speaking of the archetypal realm, you're not talking about human human kings. Uh, but it's very interesting when you study what actually happened in sacral kingship in the primitive past. You read the Golden Bow on that. Fraser's Golden Bow. It's very interesting. Because, see, Whenever the king didn't produce, he got killed. <laughs> you know, this uh, queen for a day, it was based on king for a day. And it was based on the idea that they would they would make you king, and then they would kill you. And there are a lot of stories, and you ought to try to get a hold of the golden bow during your time of working on this and read about this, because, because the king... Oh, they would put one guy, uh, the golden bow, the word the golden bow comes from the idea that that the that, that the king had to be able to pluck the golden bow out of a certain tree in a certain sacred grove. The only way you could pluck that was first to kill the person guarding the grove, who was the king. And so your job, when you were selected, would be to go in there, and if you were going to be king, you would be able to, to get the guy and kill him, and then take the golden bow down, and you would be king until they sent somebody else, or somebody else came to get you. What you got to get a sense for is in, in the ancient world, the, the psychological meaning of the totem, because this is like totemism. You know about totemism? 
Have you heard about the, uh, the tribes that if the statue, the sacred totem statue of the tribe is stolen, everything stops? Uh, it's the idea of the soul of the persons being carried by a totem object or a totem animal. And if this thing is displaced, then chaos breaks loose. Well, the king was the primal totem. So the king, the primal king in, those, in, in that very primitive time, would carry, in effect, the soul of the tribe. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, if, uh, if things weren't going well, then you knew what the problem was. And the interesting thing about it is it wasn't any fun being a king. Yeah. Because even, even when you were king, before they killed you, they had you fixed up so that you could never, you know, you've heard of the red carpet treatment? You know what that was for? Think about it, man. You, yeah. you could never step off the carpet. You could never step on the ground. And not only that, because if you did, you lose your charge, right? You lose your mana. You lose your numinous power. And uh, not only that, you couldn't look at the sun. Now, why couldn't you look at the sun? Why don't they never let them see the light of day? Why not? Tell me. Think about it. Why would you not want the king to see the sun? He's the king. He is the sun. He would be overpowered. He would lose his charge like a battery. Get it? Therefore, the concept of insulation becomes very important in the primitive world. And what do we call insulation in the primitive world? Taboo. Taboo. Things are taboo. It works like insulation. The reason you have a taboo is because you, you get pride and it loses its power. So in the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is loaded with this luminous, powerful energy, and if you touch it, even though you can fall and you get killed, you die. So in a totem type society, if the king is in a failing state, like this wounded Fisher King type thing, he's no less the king until such time as he is succeeded. So everything is going Except wrong. that everybody knows that he's got to go. <laughs> and you get this sort of, you know, the blood and the water frenzy. It's like, you know, in any organization when the king is wounded. Laws of the yeah, but I mean like in a, in a business, for example, in a company. If the king is wounded, everybody sort of, you know, they talk about rats getting off the ship. Nobody is friendly with that, with that executive once they know that, uh, once they know that he's uh, lost his mind. Richard Nixon and Watergate. Yeah. <clears throat> his aides testified to Yeah, it's, it's that. And of course the frenzy that occurs with the press, and this operates wonderfully, you know, I mean, uh, once, once human beings smell like blood in the water, you know, once they kind of get a sense that the day of the king is over, then everybody wants to get in on the act and, uh, and kill, kill the king, because, of course, if you kill him, you get a little bit of the energy. It's the same thing behind warriors counting coups. In primitive tribes, when you kill another warrior, you didn't just kill him to be killing them. You know, when body counts. You know, you kill them to get their power. And the greater the warrior you were, the 
the more accumulation of warrior power you had. I think the Mayans really have this down about the, you know, mm -hmm. Yes, Mayans, all those. I mean, all the archetypes speak here. They really were. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And uh, and once once you begin to once you begin to get a feel for this psyche economy, you get a lot better feel for primitive cultures in general. And when, you, when you study them like the mind, you get much more. Oh, I see how this operates. Oh well. Now I understand the relationship between them and the rain god and the sacrifice and so forth. But also uh, killing animals, you get the animals power. Yes. And of course, the killing of animals, according to a lot of people, and I think this is right, that is a sort of a development of the uh, ability not to kill the king. So we're, go we're not going to kill you, we're going to kill the goat. It's like the story of Abraham and Isaac. Well, I'm going to kill the son, but all of a sudden I got this goat. Well, there you see a little structurization in the psyche, see? A little bit less archetypal acting out, see? And there are a lot of theorists, psychoanalytic theorists, that think that uh, the, uh, the Christian myth is based on the, uh, the, the, the kind of moving away from this killing and eating king, and that the Eucharist is really a substitute for the actual killing and ritual uh, cannibal ingestion of the body of the actual king, which was a widespread practice. So in other words, uh, what you've got is a situation in which order is threatened a lot. And when order is threatened, you've got what have you got? Well, you've got the enemy. And they're always coming in from out here. Uh, the true enemy is not a fifth column. See, it's not just uh, from the inside. Uh, the, so when you've got the archetype of the warrior, at the exact time you have the archetype of the warrior, you've got the archetype of the enemy. It's not possible to have a warrior without an enemy. These things raise together because if there's no chaos, there's no fight. Now, what happens on this? sense to have warrior archetype without war. And so you've got this reaching of the Tao in some sense. By Tao you mean the Chinese T-A-O? Yes. 
which is another word for just the same thing that the Dharma or Ta, the Egyptian Ta, but it's the concept of right order. It's it's what the Bible, the, the Judeo-Christian Bible talks about is righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, or, or the Torah, the law. And the law, the Torah, is not a scroll. The Torah is righteousness. And it's like in the Hebrew Scriptures, it says, let righteousness roll down like mighty stream. Well, that's that's Tao. That is the right order. Just order. Okay, so you get warrior. You've got the enemy. Now, in order to understand this, you've got to understand that this is archetypal not human. Be clear about this. Human, the human psyche is set up with these archetypal polarities, and they are. And so, what do we get? Well, well, the Jungians don't talk about this enough. But what you get is, you get the forces of right and the forces of wrong. You get the forces of good and you get the forces of evil. In other words, right at the root in the psyche at this archetypal level is an archetypal dualism. Where do you get it most clearly? You get it in Zoroastrianism, Persian religion. You've got the good God and the bad God. You've got a Hura Mazda and you've got a Hiraman. Now, later on, in the development of religions, this kind of drops away a lot. And you get all these uh, sophisticated theologians that talk about, well, there's no devil, you know, they're just the truth, they're just God, you know, the white alien process God who does all these things. And, and you get the God, the philosophers. But that's not where human beings have always lived. Uh, the more primitive and primal, the more archetypal, well, what you get in the archetypal treatments of this thing is you get you get God, the, the, the good God, and you get the evil God. There is your archetypal battle. It is at the root of this thing archetypally, and whenever you get, there's no such thing as a secular war. All wars at some level are sacred. I mean they're good, it just means they're archetypal. And uh, You've got this conflict, and this locus of the conflict is the, in the psyche, that is the way the world is structured when this archetype is constellated. In other words, wherever this warrior archetype comes up, there's this scene and pattern. I want, I'm going to give you your assignments, your movie assignments. I haven't given you your movie assignments. <laughs> a pattern is the first one. 
I want you to see Patton. I want you to see MacArthur, MacArthur movie. Um, I want you to see a bunch more. We'll talk about that later. But there's a scene in Patton, which is the, which is this artifact. I mean, here Dorsey Scott, you know, got the tanks lined up around the hill here under camouflage, and Rommel's tanks are coming out across the plain. There's Armageddon. I mean, North Africa, in that, in that scene, that's Armageddon. And Patton, according to the way it's presented in the movie, is in his fantasy. He clearly sees himself as a knight in service of the true God. And he sees Rommel as a knight in the service of the true God. And he's scoping out with binoculars. And he's looking at this plane. And he loves it. And it feels so right. From the very beginnings of his life, he has waited for this moment. This moment. This is the moment. <laughs> and the reason it's the moment is because that's one of the deepest archetypal structures in human psyche. And he's always felt called to be the leader of men in this great struggle. Yeah. I think that same scene about one step further, I believe he makes a statement also that the reason he was successful in that was that he had read a book that Brown had written about such a battle. And was, if you look at it archetypally, it was like knowing the shadow side of himself. Yes. He, 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 he says, Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book. Yes. So you see that when you look at this, you see you can't be patent without Rommel. Oh, yeah. See, got, you got that. And when he found out that Rommel wasn't commanding those tanks, he scored Because he is the vicar of the true God. You get it? And Rommel would be the vicar of the evil God. And here we have all of history condensed. And he even says to the, his aide, I want you to watch that movie carefully. Because he says to his aide, well, if it was done the way it ought to be done, Rama would get in his tank and button up. What's your analysis of, of him? Are you saying this is constellated? Is this, I mean, it seems to work pretty good in that, in, in him. I mean, it seems like that's not a, I mean, a psychotic thing. I mean, it seems like it it works well. You guys to be a World War II general and fight Panzer divisions. You sure as hell better be accessing this archetype pretty heavy. Because <laughs> 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 when you see a bunch of Tiger tanks, when you see a bunch of Tiger tanks coming out across the plain with German infantry in large force behind them, and you don't have very much of this, you run. Or you do like Montgomery did, who didn't have as much of this archetype, contrary to what might be the thought. You study it a lot, you study a lot, and you, you wait until you have a sure victory. Until you get so many forces that you've got a sure victory, which means you don't fight as often. But, uh, but that right there, you see, if you look at that scene carefully in the movie, and you know what you should know by now in this course, you will see the archetypal structure 
This is the primal combat. This is the primal combat. And whenever the archetype of the warrior is constellated in any kind of serious way, there is this constellated. In other words, you you will have a sense of the plane. And you will have a sense of the decisive activity that's called for. And you will have a sense of, of risking everything. <coughs> uh, and uh, what we've got to do in this course is to try to get some sense about what that's about inside. See? I mean, what is that for? Is that just one of the uh, the leftover parts of the killer race, which some people would argue? Uh, feminists have said for some time, you know, that males are the cause of war. There's something about the male psyche. And there is a sense in which they are on something. That is to say, I think it is true that this particular archetype is 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 more dominant in masculine psychology. It's not absent from feminine psychology by any means. But uh, this makes it even more important to get some sense about what it's for and how to use it because the idea that you're ever going to get the pattern out of men, you might as well forget it. It's going to be in there and they're either going to be slapping soldiers that are, that are uh, helpless you know, as he did. I mean, it's an interesting study to study the shadow side of this archetype. Because Patton, even more than MacArthur, had a lot of immature streaks in him. And he, he manifested the shadow warrior a good bit in his relationships with other men and with other generals. We'll see that in a little bit. But you get a sense for what I'm talking about. Warrior, if you have access to this, you will know what your enemy is. And if you don't know what your enemy is, you don't have access to it, period. Now, next week, we'll spend a lot more time talking about how that, what that set up, how that set up to function in science. In a positive way, that is, what is what, what is what I want you to be thinking about this week. What are the positive uses of that? When you read it from neurobiology, though, dialectics is being part of the fuel structure of the brain. Oh, I think that it's. Seems that, you know, that's, I think that it's based in brain structure. Sure and then the, and I don't think you're ever going to get rid of it for that reason. This is in the hard wiring, not the soft wiring. Well, that's what Austin said. You know, that's yeah. your I mean, sure. all, is there, in fact, a um, great hiatus between male and female? Given, um, <laughs> is, is that not all the social conditioning? Well, I think, I think that... Uh, I mean, in terms of basic. Well, of course, we don't know as much about this as we will know before too long. But, uh, but my guess is that there are significant gender differences on this front, particularly on this one. And, uh, and that makes the male of the species a, a big problem for the, for the planet. That's all social conditioning, I mean, is that really that's, that's the question. 
See, a union will not save the social conditioning. What is social conditioning and social conditions is how this is addressed and what kind of use or utilization is made of this and what kind of interpretation and, and, and socialization education around this archetype. And my, my concern is, for, you know, uh, is very simple that what is happening now among a lot of people is uh, that they think that this thing can be excised by re-socialization in some way. I don't think that's the minute. Uh, I think that uh, I think that the only option really is to find ways to help this thing. Well, Freud would use what word in this context? Sublimation. Sublimation. What you hope you can do with this thing is to help people find appropriate sublimations for it, and uh, uh, that is a. Uh, that's, that's a, you know, Freudians always sort of make, the way they use language, it makes it sound like uh, you're really not letting this out. When in fact, I would argue that, that what it is for is to be manifested in mature ways. And that that is, that is not sublimation. I would call that mature expression of it. Yeah, I'm sorry to deal with the pathological, but I'm thinking about the Stockton uh, yes. uh, character again. And, and, and would he would he have imagined with his warrior archetype have imagined that there is an enemy there, or is it just that the warrior archetype just goes berserk and kills? No, no. Thing? this thing uh, there there is method in this. Mm -hmm. That was his old oh, story. Well, look how he dressed up. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a ritual occasion. Dressed up in his flat jacket, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, he had a diversionary tactic. I mean, this was the ritual drama. It wasn't just uh, see. That's if you're Freudian, you think, well, he just kind of it, it just kind of you know he lost it. <laughs> see, that's a Freudian thing. You know, you lose it. You know, regressed. Because it isn't that simple. Because when you regress from a union point, you don't just kind of become jelly. You regress into a structure. And he regressed into this structure. And then all of a sudden, he's got his AK-47, and, and everything's structured. It's, 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 it's the scene. He was, this school ground was the scene. He was a sacred warrior. He was fighting a good fight. What was the enemy? Oh, That's what's confusing. Well, it was the devil. What? Well, Satan is the archetypal enemy in this thing. That's just another word for Hermon, Satan. Satan was a little kid? Or sure. And think about how easy that would be for you to the extent that you cannot stand the boy, the uninitiated boy in yourself. See? To the extent you're not on terms with the vulnerable boy in yourself, you will pathologize and demonize the infantile boy. Uh, the typical so-called macho man demonizes the boy within him. And uh, that's what makes him homophobes. See? Uh, homophobia is directly related to this demonization of the 
passive, uninitiated masculine for them. So what you want to do is get rid of that which is not consistent with my idealized self-image. So I'm quite sure this guy was killing his inner boy and his inner child. Because if you are an uninitiated male, you cannot stand people who are strong and you cannot stand people who are weak. On one hand, you envy the strong ones and you hate the weak ones because they remind you of your own weakness and vulnerability. See, so you've got Christ. The way Jung puts it up, and what you've got to get a sense for, a lot of Jungians, pop Jungians, romanticize the archetype of self. They think it's friendly. Well, it's part of it is. <laughs> But in Jung's understanding, you get, you get this polarity in the archetypal self. You've got it structured like this. You've got Christ on one side and you've got Satan on the other. And so this, again, this archetypal ground in here is the plane of conflict. And so, so, <clears throat> Whenever this, whenever this archetype is formed, you need an enemy, and you need a battle, and you need a plane of operations. And uh, because you need something to do reconnaissance on, <laughs> and you need something to, to strategize on, you need a plane. You need a plane. Well, you need a plane. Well, you need. Well, you got what to do? Study. You study military tactics. It's all in the military. It's all in uh, West Point. That is, you learn. Uh, you learn about strategy and tactics. <coughs> See, if, if this archetype is not constellated in you. You'll never think strategy and tactics about anything. You won't do much planning. See? There are a lot of people that live their lives that way. Do you believe? Mm -hmm. That uh, they never really plan anything out. And, uh, for example, uh, and this is true in every realm of a person's life. It's like every day, the day comes and it goes. The day comes and it goes. The next day comes and it goes. With no warrior, no strategy, no battle plan. Is that the no. king of the. I'm sorry. Is that the king? No, sir. The king doesn't mess with that stuff when he's on the throne. Everybody does that for him. It's the warrior archetype. That strategizes and knows where it wants to go. Where does it want to go? It wants to go right straight through them and kill the king or kill the other general. And uh, if you study Alexander the Great, you want to get hold of this. I mean, he walked around. He was a god king, the god king warrior. 
And uh, it's an amazing thing just to study Alexander because to, to study this stuff because uh, there's so much function pleasure in the warrior when it's really online. And Alexander just loved to scope out. He would he would scope out the enemy's defenses. And then he would think, where do they think I'm going to attack? Well, they think I'm going to attack over there where it's kind of weak. But I'm not going to attack where it's weak. I'm going to find the strongest point in their line, and I'm going to leave the charge, and we're going to go right to it. Now look at that. Think about that. And you really get a sense of the archetype and nature of that. That's not later on generalship. That's that's the archetypal general. That's the general like Patton, who doesn't like it if the other guy is not Rommel. He wants to take on the strongest one and beating that. Yeah. So would you say that this of the formula archetypes is the is the uh, structure? Of structure, uh, this is your obsessive compulsive favorite archetype. Mm -hmm. This is the one the obsessive compulsive knows best. The obsessive compulsive doesn't have much else. This is the archetype of doing action. If you take action, you've got this. If you think about it a lot, <laughs> You don't have it. You just if you just think about it a lot, and you spend most of your time thinking about it. Nobody even the magus <laughs> You know that's the academics. See, I mean, the academics sit around. You know, the academics you, you present you present you know homelessness to the academics. They study. Don't really have. This is one problem about it. You know, they're studying. And to the extent that the academics are running any particular area, they will study the hell out of it. And they write books on it. They're not going to cure it. And uh, and uh, when that thing gets run, runs away, you just you just get no action about anything. And if it gets, the, if the magician thing gets so powerful in the personality, they can't even write books. Because you see, if you get so consumed with the magician, then you can see through your own argument. <laughs> 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 what they say, well, you get too smart, because if you get too smart, you won't ever say anything. <laughs> But, but to the extent, to the extent that you are a person of action, this is your archetype. Yeah. Are there uh, mature examples of this? All over the place. Mature examples. Sure. Sure. Uh, the thing is, you know, when you say a mature example, you're talking about somebody that has got enough contact with the other ones. That, that they're able to, to keep this thing from <clears throat> driving them. You know, a workaholic, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call it a material example of it. 
because the workaholic, and we'll get into this more uh, when we talk about pathology, workaholic just, see, one of the interesting things about it, one of the interesting things about it is it carries, this thing carries its own anesthesia. It carries a kind of a painkiller. And if you've got a lot of this in your psyche, one of the things you notice about yourself is when you really get tired, you stop being able to tell you're tired. And that's the syndrome of the workaholic. Because when they really start getting fatigued, they can't tell it. Because they regress into this, and when you regress into this, you don't feel pain too much. You get more and more stamina. You get more and more focus. You get less and less self-concern. You get more and more focused on the task. You can lie in a bed of fire ants and not feel the sting. <laughs> you keep Gordon Liddy and you put your hand in the flame and not feel the pain. And uh, that has certain positive sides to it. We'll, we'll be getting into what that's for next week. I mean, what is that? What is that for? That capacity to not feel the pain. Uh, but uh, this is the shape of it. You get the enemy, the field of conflict. And you have the requirement for the leader here. Because the warrior, in this sense, is going to be the person who marshals the forces. It's not going to attack everywhere at once. Uh, it will strategize. And as Patton put it, a good place for us to stop tonight. This archetype will attack, and it will attack, and it will attack, and it will keep on attacking until it is has won or it is dead. This archetype doesn't know anything about retreating. <laughs> And so uh, that's, you know, we talk about assertiveness, assertiveness. This is the archetype of assertiveness. And next week we will look at the uses of it. The following week we'll look at the pathology of it. And the last week we'll look at trying to get in touch with this in a way that might be healthy for you. Thank you a lot. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, archives, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst in your you, visit our website, jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2021 donors who gave at the contributing member level or above. The Arlene M. Feiner Trust, Barbara Anand, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Judith Cooper, 
Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Carl and Patricia Greer, Ryan Mayer, Patricia Martin, Boris Matthews, Sue Rosenthal, Diane Sherwood, Debbie Stutzman, Lawrence Chad Tingley, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, and Ellen Young. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by visiting our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks.